Imagine having the life of your dreams. Not temporary cash and glory, but happiness and inner peace. Explore new ways to be a creator and take your own journey into greatness. Is it possible? What does it take to make that happen? It takes the person known for extreme results. He's called the cage breaker and the ultimate catalyst. Coming back from the brink of death and now crushing it for himself and his clients, this is your Ultimate Life Podcast with Kellen Flukiger. Hi there and welcome to this episode of Your Ultimate Life. Today's episode 699 and this one and the next five I'm going to do a series on something that people have found very, very fascinating. I had never really done this before. I've talked about it in other episodes many times, but I haven't gone through it like I'm going to today. And everything that I'm going to talk to you about, I'm, I'm reaching for something here, is going to be, is in this book, uh, Meeting God at the Door. And it it's about a an experience that happened to me in June of 2018. So a little over four years ago, as I record this, I'm recording in September of 2022, but I don't know when you're going to see this. Uh, and that's fine. He, here's uh, what it is and why I'm doing it. So this is a six-part series about uh, me dying and then returning to this earth. It's it, that... that it, it's just something that you never think is going to happen to you. I, like I'd heard about such things, and I think I'd even read some articles. I haven't been an avid student or a purchaser of books and followed it through because I just haven't. I've never been concerned about death. It was going to come when it came, and I wasn't worried about it. I was certainly not afraid of it. Because I think because there's nothing you can do. And so I just never worried about it. And I decided, I determined a long time ago to live the best I could while I was alive. And then when it came, it was here. And oh, oh well, that's the end, right? Uh, I, the end in terms of this life. We all have the feeling, and some avowedly deny it, but we all have the feeling we came from somewhere and we're going somewhere. And I'd had that feeling also. And I think one of the things that, formed my feeling about dying in the beginning was uh, when I was in, in grade school in different classes, teachers used to read books to us, you know, and I have fond memories of some of those books. And one of the book, uh, I, I don't even remember the name of it. I just remember that the story, it wasn't a book, it was a short story. And this was about and all the piece that I remember, like I don't remember the whole plot or anything like that, but the piece that I remember was about an old man whose grandpa and a young fellow. And the grandpa was getting on in years. And of course, as I was a kid in elementary school, I probably in the fourth or fifth grade, so nine or 10 or something, I, um, you know, it was very interesting because uh, a kid was my age and he had a grandpa that was getting old and I did too. And you know, all that stuff. And so anyway, the grandpa was getting on in years and was sick. And he'd been to the doctor and the doctor had told him, you know, you got to cut down your activity. And the grandpa was a very vibrant guy and did a lot of stuff and 
you know, kind of an exciting good grandpa to have. I remember that about the story. And the little boy was sad because grandpa had always gone and done stuff with him. And it was so cool. And now, you know, he couldn't do that anymore and everything else. And so one day the boy went to, uh, the, the boy was going to go to the fair. Uh, there was local uh, county fair or state fair or something. But anyway, the grandpa wasn't going to be able to go <clears throat> because he wasn't supposed to do this. And his diet was supposed to be careful and, you know, not too much excitement and activity and all the rest. And so he was supposed to stay home. Anyway, the kid went over to visit grandpa and grandpa brought the kid in furtively and said, all right, I'm not supposed to go anywhere, but we're going to sneak out. and We're going to go to the fair. And, oh, Grandpa, oh, it's okay, we're going to do it. So they snuck out together and went to the fair and had an outrageously good time and rode all the rides and ate all the terrible food, <laughs> the hot dogs and the cotton candy and everything else. And uh, when they got home, you know, the little boy was worried, well, Grandpa, you know, aren't you going to suffer, you know, be consequences or going to do something to you or whatever? And, I don't remember the details of the story, but I do remember the advice Grandpa gave his son. And he said this, live while you live and then die and be done with it. And that stuck with me riveted <clears throat> on my heart from that day forward. Live while you live and then die and be done with it. So I think that probably formed a lot of my feelings about death. I'm going to live while I live and then die and be done with it. Now, those of you that have followed much of my work know that after I left high school and went to college and in my careers and everything else, I struggled with decades of depression because of my upbringing and you know, just stuff that happened. And this isn't the episode for that. If you want to read about that, the book Tightrope of Depression tells all about it. And I've talked about it in some other episodes and on many other people's podcasts. But anyway, so that all changed in 2007 when a divine intervention radically offered me the opportunity, the, the, an invitation, as it were, to change my life. And so I did. Walked away from the industry and everything I was doing and started over. And so that's 15 years ago now or so as I record this. Actually, 15 years this month because it was August of, no, last month. It was August of 2007 at September 2022 as I record this. So anyway. <clears throat> my life changed. I began the coaching practice that I have and things went along. I built a business from nothing and it's built very successfully and so forth. And my commitment this year is to help 10 million people discover, develop and serve with their divine gifts. And I'm going to reach that goal. In fact, I'm going to wildly exceed that goal. And when I made it several months ago, I had no idea how it was going to happen, but as, as it happens, when you move confidently in the direction of your dreams, things start happening. That's a, mis, a, a mangling of the statement by Thoreau. Move confidently in the direction of your dreams and new liberal laws come into effect and so forth. It's worth looking up. So after I'd been pursuing that from 2007 to 2018 for 11 years, Joy and I, my wife, who was part of that divine intervention in 2007, decided to go on a cruise and um, if that's where the, the story begins and I'll get to this to story in just a minute. I just want to make sure it's clear why I'm doing this. So 
I never knew much about these kinds of experiences. I didn't study it. Death was never a thing in my mind. It was just something that was going to happen, and I wasn't worried about it. I wasn't afraid of it. It was going to be when it was. And I'd attempted suicide a couple of times during the traumatic parts of my addictions and depression struggle, which went on from 17 to 52. So that 35 years, I never got any help. I lived struggling up and down the roller coaster madness of depression alone without anyone to, to, to talk to. I could have. I didn't know you could. And, you know, what happened there didn't matter. But so I'd, I'd done all those things and never worried about death or dying. Now that I was living a different life, then I had this near-death experience, and I'm talking about it, and I wrote about it in that book because it's, it was extraordinary, <laughs> something you never expect to happen, and because I get asked about it a lot. In fact, yesterday I just had a lunch club meeting, which meet with meeting a new person, and I ask about them, which I always do, and then they ask about me, and I mentioned a few things, and that, just a brief mention of that, and the one thing he wanted to know was more about that. So we spent the rest of the time talking about it, and then that was an area of interest for him, but it never was for me. So here are the details. In June of 2018, Joy and I went on a cruise, this is 11 years, almost, uh, after the divine intervention that invited me to change my life, which I'd accepted and was creating a coaching practice, writing books, and all the rest. I got very ill in Oslo, and I just, bad fever, and it was getting hard to walk. And that was on Monday, and on Tuesday, um, we flew home from Amsterdam. I think that was June 2nd. And then Wednesday and Thursday of that week, I didn't go to the doctor. I kept thinking, like I always said, oh, it's a bad flu. It'll get, it'll get better. And it went up and down. But the, the, the direction, the trend was decidedly in the downward direction. And, you know, I've thought about it considerably since then, and I thought, what arrogance we have to think that we're invincible. And it, like I said, it wasn't that I was afraid of death. I just never considered it because I'd always gotten well before. But this started getting just awful, and it was difficult to walk. Uh, it was difficult to think straight. It's interesting because back up a few days on the Tuesday when we flew home from Amsterdam, I was clearly ill and distressed and had a fever on the plane. And, you know, today, of course, they would throw you, throw you out the window of the airplane because of Corona. In those days, they just took care of you and brought you ice. Anyway, back up to Wednesday and Thursday, I just kept thinking that things were going to be okay, and they weren't. Finally, Friday, a little uh, around noon or a little after, I decided I was going to go to the clinic. And in Canada, they have walk-in clinics. They do in many countries. And so my primary physician was in this walk-in clinic uh, as part of the healthcare system. So I went over to the clinic, and there was a sign that I'd seen before on the wall inside that said, you know, and this is all pre-COVID, if you have a cough or something, please let the nurse know. It's probably something that's in the corner or 
move you into a waiting different area, you know, to out of respect for the other patients. It makes all kinds of sense. So I sent Joy, who was driving into the clinic, to tell them to, you know, to come out and see if I was okay to come in. And while she was gone, <clears throat> I coughed and coughed up some phlegm and spat it on the uh, on the asphalt in the con in the parking lot. This is not on the sidewalk or anything, but on the asphalt in the parking lot, black asphalt, right? Anyway, the nurse came out and she got about, f I had the window rolled down because <clears throat> it was June and the weather was nice. And she took one look at me and she said, you can't come in here. I was shocked and she said, there's nothing we can do for you here. Go now to the emergency room. I thought, holy cow, this is not fun. This is not good. And then she looked down and saw in the parking lot on the asphalt that I had spat some phlegm down there. And she said, is that yours? And I said, yeah. And she said, don't do that. And I thought, wow. And she wasn't, it wasn't about spitting in public. It was, she looked at that, looked at me and said, that down there is living death. Go to the ER. So that was horrifying. And we did. And we got to the emergency room and it was about like normal. There were a whole bunch of people waiting. And like most emergency rooms, I'd been to this one before. I wasn't a frequent hospital visitor by any stretch. But I'd been there a year earlier when I'd had an emergency, two years earlier, a year and a half something. In January of uh, 2017, I'd had an emergency gallbladder surgery that I'd been in terrible pain. But anyway, so the a bunch of people there, probably 30 or 40. And, <clears throat> and like most ERs, I figured, well, you know, be an hour or maybe two or maybe three before they got to you, depending on everything. And the normal thing is you, you check in the triage nurse and then you sit down. The triage nurse calls you up as quickly as they can. They get a very, very initial assessment. And then if they think, you know, you're not dumb for being there or whatever, they send you over to the other real check-in desk. And then you sit down again and wait till they call you and they have space and everything. Well, that space usually takes that time is usually an hour or two or even three, depending on how many ER people come or ambulance people come in and how many people are there and all the rest. And you've been there, so you probably know the drill. But anyway, I was shocked because I checked in. Uh, the triage nurse called me immediately. And in 10 minutes, they called me. And I looked at Joy and I thought, like, all these people are here before us. Maybe one had come in later. In 10 minutes, they called me and they put me in a private room. Now, up to that point, I didn't know there were private rooms. In the emergency room, the only thing I'd ever seen are those little privacy curtains they draw next to the makeshift beds. And, you know, they have 20 or 30 of those. But no, this was a different part and had a private room with a door. 10 minutes, I was in a private room. I barely had time to collect my thoughts. And the doctor came in. <clears throat> so 
In a very few minutes, the doctor was with me. I began to get worried because that was like way out of line, right? <clears throat> they asked me all kinds of questions about where we'd been. And I told them the story about the cruise and Oslo and getting sick and how many days it had been and, you know, rehearsed that story that I just told to you and answered all the questions and everything else. And then they began tests. And so they did the vitals and all the rest. And they sent me for x-rays and and uh, as the minutes, and this was literally f faster than normal, but I had to wait for x-rays. And so an hour or two or three went by in this whole process, but not because I was waiting. We're waiting for results and so forth. So after a couple of hours, uh, they came back and said, um, well, we're going to admit you to the hospital. There's no question. We're just trying to figure out where to put you. And so I just assumed that uh, they were trying to find a room, and, and maybe they were, but there was something a lot worse going on that I didn't understand yet. And they kept, and they asked me again where I'd been and, you know, just the whole set of circumstances. And I repeated everything as best I could with as much detail as I could possibly remember. We'd been to Tallinn, Estonia, and St. Petersburg which at uh, this time I record this, Ukraine war is still going on, and that's sad, so I don't know if that'll ever be a place to go again with Russia the way it is, but we'll see. Anyway, Helsinki and, you know, just a, a bunch of those cities, and then we ended up in Oslo at the end. I told that story probably three times, and then results kept co started coming in, and at first they said, well, at a minimum you have terrible, terrible pneumonia in both lungs. But we're, we're not sure what else, but something else is going on. So then uh, they came back and said, yeah, um, <clears throat> you're not doing well. So something is really wrong and we have to do two more tests and so forth. And then somewhere in there, uh, they, they found a place up on the fifth floor with a regular patient ward they took me up there and there I was uh, in a room. It was a private room. I thought, oh, this is um, interesting. Okay. wonder what I did for that, good or bad. And then they came in a little while later and said, well, we think we're going to move you to the ICU. I thought, okay, this is not good. And then I came in a little while later and by now it's getting late in the afternoon and starting to get into the evening and I sent Joy home because I'm admitted to the hospital. They're going to apparently move me to the, she left actually before they told me they were going to move me to the ICU. We have cats and dogs and she needed to take care of stuff. And I was in the hospital. So I sent her home and I said, they're going to do whatever they do, come back in the morning and we'll figure out maybe by then they'll know what's going on and we'll be okay. At least we'll know what we're doing. So she went home, took care of everything and then went to bed. In the meantime, what had gone on with me is they'd moved me to the intensive care unit. And um, actually, they hadn't moved me yet. They were going to. They said we're going to. And then they came back and said, actually, what we think we're going to do is we're going to put you in isolation, biological isolation. And I'm thinking, and you know, double doors with, you know, negative pressure rooms, hazmat suits. Holy cow. And then after a while, and now it's getting late, late into the evening, 
they came back and said, asked the question you never want to hear. They said, well, do we have permission to intubate you and do anything else we need to do to preserve your life? I gasped, feeling like I'd been hit in the stomach, and I thought, uh, uh, yes, and they left in a hurry. I went into meditation because meditation was a habit I developed in my teenage years, and I think that while it wasn't regular, my meditation practice is probably what allowed me to live the, through the 35 years of untreated depression and, you know, the past a couple of suicide attempts and everything else. But anyway, so I had a lot of practice and I went into meditation as quickly as I could and deeply as I could. And I felt a strange thing I'd never felt before. I could feel my body and spirit separating. It, it was like a likened to a sort of a zipper opening and I could feel the two parts spreading. I came out of the meditation and picked up my phone and I realized I could barely operate it. I was trembling. And I sent a text to Joy that was three lines long because that's all I could write. The first line said, I see you, even though they hadn't moved me yet. They'd said they were going to. The second line said, isolation slash intubation. And the third line said, I may be dying. Joy didn't see that because she was asleep. Shortly, very shortly after I fell back into the bed, after sending that, I crashed. Uh, I don't know what the color is, code blue, I think, blue, green, black, whatever. But anyway, I crashed. And I was gone. I was rushed, obviously, to the ICU. And they started doing the work of trying to revive me. My heart stopped and I died. I came to energetically or spiritually horizontal like I was on the bed and sat up and the room I was in was gray uh, I couldn't see the room, the actual room I was in with the knobs and dials and gear and everything else. But I sat up and I looked around. The walls were kind of gray and the ceiling, kind of like photo card gray, that very soft gray. And I looked over my shoulder and I could see a doorway. <laughs> Didn't have a door in it, but it was just, you know, a regular doorway. And I thought, I want to be at that door. <clears throat> so suddenly I'm standing at the door and I'm leaning on the door jamb on my right shoulder and the, the room all around me is gray. And I saw across the doorway, there was someone standing on that side, leaning on that door jamb, like right close, or I could, you know, that close, I could reach out and touch him. And that side of the doorway was white. My side was gray and that side was white. The light wasn't streaming through. It was just gray on my side and white on that side. And that individual looked at me and said, do you want to come home? In a millionth of a second, 
I knew that I was speaking to God. I knew that this doorway was the portal between life and death. And I knew the question was real and what the answers meant. As a coach, as coaches, one of the favorite things we talk about is holding space. It's creating opportunity for people to think, to be clear with their thoughts, and to see their own opportunity. It's holding space while people think and talk and be and that sort of thing. Well, I can tell you, as a very experienced practitioner of holding space for people, there's never been any space in any universe like that space. I knew without question that the question needed an answer, and there would be an answer, but there was no expectation about the answer. It was soft, it was real, and it was there. Do you want to come home? I realized that meant, do I want to leave this life and move on to the next? which God articulated is coming home. We began a, a conversation. I thought about what I had done in the 11 years since the earlier divine intervention, which I'm not describing here because it would take more time than we have. You can read about it in tightrope. But anyway, I thought about everything I'd done since then and the journey that I was on, and I thought about all the plans that Joy and I had and how many things we hadn't done yet and that we certainly weren't organized in our partnership or with everything set up for to go. So I thought about her mostly, but I thought about the work that I'd been about and what I was trying to do, how much there was still to do, and I thought about my kids as a result of um, the multiple divorces and the multiple addictions and rehab stints and everything that I had been through, I had I have 10 children and some of them, I know that sounds like a lot and it is and they're all mine. And I love every one of them to death, every single breath they take. But some of them don't talk to me because of the struggles around the divorces and addictions and so forth. And I thought about that, too, because that, to me, represents a tremendous opportunity. I love them. I look forward to perhaps a day when they will make a choice to allow more communication and those kinds of things. So I thought about that. Not in a, and it's funny because it wasn't a, oh, oh, I need this. It wasn't in this sort of needy, oh, I'm, uh, I'm not complete. Oh, none of that was present. It was the most holy and beautiful space. I thought about the opportunities. There's an opportunity to help more people in my coaching. There's an opportunity to have a big impact in bigger impact in the world. There's an opportunity to love people more. There's an opportunity to be more of what I've made out of myself in this last 11 years. There's an opportunity to rekindle relationships with kids and grandkids and just do more good. I had a phrase I love to use, add good to the world. And what was just pressing on my heart was add good to the world. I thought, oh, 
There's so much more. And besides that, Joy and I aren't anywhere near done. I'm just not ready. And so after what felt like a lengthy consideration, I looked at God and said, I'm not done yet. He nodded and said, okay. And that was the end of that one question conversation. Now, there were two more, and I'll talk about the next conversation in the next episode, which took place the next day, but I'll describe that later. But after I answered the question, I'm not done. Okay. I, I'm quite sure that that's when they were able to restart my heart. Because the decision had been made with powers and in the realm of truth and power <clears throat> that allowed the mortal things to take place. To resuscitate the body, which is the container for the intelligence or spirit that we all have. And we all know that we are not our bodies. We sometimes identify with them. When we stop and think about it, we know that we, the true spirit and intelligence, we're in there somewhere, but we're not like our foot or when someone loses a leg, like they're not less of who they are or even both legs or even more. The, the, the person, the thing that's in there, the us, still there, still the same. So anyway, I said I wasn't done and he said, okay. And in the book, Meeting God at the Door, I also wrote a second part. I wrote this and the rest of the conversations, which I'll continue with on the next episode. But I, I wrote also what Joy told me was going on outside in the room, you know, the frantic activities and so forth, because, of course, I did not know those things. I was in, in a holy place having that conversation. So I chose to stay a conscious, considered, thoroughly weighed, discussed, intentional choice to stay because I have more to do. I'm not done yet. And that choice was honored completely and immediately evidenced by the fact that they were able to restart my heart and begin the process of resuscitation. Now, I was in a coma for 17 days, so the resuscitation didn't bring me back to consciousness, but we'll get into more of that later. That's the first thing that happened. That's how I died. Um, that's that first conversation and the clear, unambiguous, unequivocal choice that I was presented and that I made, and that's a precious choice. And it, it's like the choices that we have every day. We choose our existence. We'll continue in the next episode. I want to assure you that the things that I'm describing, however miraculous or curious they may seem to you, and whether you have had a similar experience or not, 
there's nothing more important than the individual intelligent considered choices that we make about who who we want to be in the world and how we want to show up that's the only choice that matters and how much we have is not important and the whole purpose of the podcast is to help you create a life of purpose prosperity and joy it's in your hands and you can create your ultimate life Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope that you take it deeply into your heart and decide for yourself how you can create anything you desire. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback and topic suggestions. Until tomorrow, this is Your Ultimate Life with host Kellen Flukiger. Stay